What's the correlation between diversity and profitability? How about inclusion and innovation, accessibility and belonging? Is there a correlation? I'll tell you the conclusion in advance. Yes, there is absolutely a direct relationship between diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging, and profitability, innovation, employee retention, and cohesion. In this episode, we'll explore these relationships and examine how DEIAB, diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging, offers individuals and organizations skill sets that, when intentionally and strategically implemented, lead to positive outcomes for organizations, certainly, but more importantly, for all stratospheres of society. I'm Darylise Lyons, the creator and host of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, and other books and articles related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, including I'm Mixed, which is a children's book about being biracial, which I wrote under the pseudonym Maggie Williams. I've given a TEDx talk entitled Black or White, Refusing to Choose and Embracing Biracial Identity, and I work as a DEIB strategist, educator, and consultant. I can emphatically say that my experiences of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, both personal and professional, have given shape and substance to my life. Before we delve into today's topic, I'd like to acknowledge that I am speaking to you from the ancestral lands of the Lenape people and to thank Indigenous people, past, present, and future, for their resilience and their contributions to a nation that was built on stolen land using stolen labor. This is episode 11 of season 3 of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, brought to you in partnership with Temple University's Fox School of Business Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick. This is DEIAB, an $8 billion industry. And as we move into today's episode, I think it's important to establish a context. So when thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging, what do I mean and what does that encompass? Unfortunately, DEI is the buzzword. It's become a buzzword, a set of buzzwords, whatever, that people just don't understand. That's why half of every conversation on DEI I've ever been part of just gets stuck in definitions, which is the least useful thing in the world. A one-hour session and 30 minutes of it are, are defining DEI. I hate it. Can we do something instead of defining words? Understanding what a word means is not particularly difficult. And yet I, I see a lot of folks mistaking the very semantic aspects of what DEI is for actually the work itself, which I think is a huge critical error. It should be a very simple question you ask. For example, looking at gender parity. Does your workplace have gender representation at every level that reflects the population in the environments that you're operating in? Yes or no? Yes? Great. You've got gender diversity. Done. No, you don't. Keep on working at it. Ta-da. And then let's, let's do that with everything else. There's such a, I think, esoteric way of thinking about all of this stuff as being mired down in academic buzzwords and concepts and whatnot that we've lost track of the actual work, which is what are we trying to achieve? How do we achieve it? Have we achieved it yet? Usually no. Then what do we do? How do we solve for this stuff? How can we get to a state where we say, you know what? 
I think we've actually gotten there. I think we've achieved diversity. We've achieved inclusion. We've achieved equity. That was Lily Zhang, a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategist and consultant, and the author of three books, the most recent of which is DEI Deconstructed, Your No-Nonsense Guide to Doing the Work and Doing It Right. Lily works with organizations around the world to create the equitable, inclusive, and just organizations of the future. And to be clear, Lily told me we should have some degree of working definitions of DEIAB terms so we can know what we're trying to achieve. But they said we need to quickly move from definition to implementation. So I'm giving you approximately one minute out of this hour and a half long episode where I'll share very short, digestible definitions of the terms I'll be speaking about today. Equity. The practice of providing various levels of support and assistance based on specific needs, access, and abilities, which should not be confused with equality. Inclusion. The practice or policy of including and integrating people of all identities, especially those who are marginalized or disadvantaged, in activities, processes, organizations, and or environments. Accessibility. The quality of being easily reached, entered, used, or utilized, especially by those with non-typical needs. Accessibility may refer to the design of products, devices, services, vehicles, or environments, as well as to actions, attitudes, and policies. Belonging. A sense of fitting in. Feeling wanted, included, and accepted as a member or a part, particularly of a group. And last but certainly not least, diversity. The practice of meaningful inclusion of people from a range of different identities and experiences. To expand on that definition further, diversity is wide-ranging and relates to all varieties of human identity and experiences. DEI spans all dimensions of difference. And so DEI work essentially, just to define it, right, it's diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the way that I approach this work is I see diversity, equity, and inclusion as outcomes that effective DEI work is trying to achieve. And so the work is being done to achieve diverse workplaces. The work is being done to achieve equitable workplaces. The work's being done to achieve inclusive workplaces. And you can't achieve any of those things unless it is true and unless that's the case for every dimension of difference. And so that means race, gender, sexuality. That means class. That means ability. That means religion. And I can keep on going. The true end goal of DEI work is to create workplaces and perhaps ambitiously societies where there are no inequities by these dimensions of difference. From that lens, it's at least clear to me that you can't take a singular lens on trying to achieve DEI, right? You can't just say, I'm going to focus on this one dimension of difference, say gender, or say ability, or say race. You need to focus on all of them at once if you want to achieve these outcomes for everyone. Before we can work towards achieving workplaces that are inclusive of all dimensions of difference, we have to evaluate how things are currently, which requires asking questions to gauge whether or not our organizations are diverse, equitable, inclusive, and accessible. 
Taking it beyond workplaces themselves, we should also be asking whether organizations and corporations are serving their communities and consumers in diverse, equitable, inclusive, and accessible ways. In order to do that evaluation, we need to interrogate the status quo by questioning existing systems and outcomes. A few examples of questions we might ask are, are there a multitude of identities, experiences, and perspectives at this organization? Is there diversity at all levels, including leadership? Is everyone's voice being listened to? Are wages equitable across identity lines? Is this space physically accessible? Is it culturally accessible? Does this organization make accommodations to ensure that individuals with sensory needs are being able to adequately rest and recharge during the course of their workday? What's the disability disclosure rate? Do people feel comfortable being their authentic selves here? So again, this list of questions is by no means exhaustive, but you can get a sense of how DEIAB assessments are a critical first step in working towards more equitable, inclusive, and accessible workplaces. But before delving into how to implement DEIAB practices and initiatives, I'd like to take a moment to build the case for why businesses should be invested in DEIAB. Because there are too many benefits to list, we'll provide links in the show notes for anyone wanting a more comprehensive overview. But in the meantime, several of the voices you'll hear in this episode shared some insights about the importance of DEIAB, and I'd like to share those with you. Tamar Pearson-Brown is the Associate Dean for Equity and Inclusive Excellence, a clinical associate professor of law at University of Pittsburgh School of Law, and the director of the Health Law Clinic, which operates as a medical legal partnership with UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. There are benefits that range from having creativity of team, of having the opportunity to support a range of clients. I think that if we are inclusive in our workplace and our employees and our staff are well supported in bringing their differences, right, the company sort of yields the benefits of having a variety of different viewpoints, a variety of different worldviews, solving the problems that the particular organization faces. Natalie Peterson is an associate professor of legal studies at Drexel University's Labau College of Business, vice president of the Employment Law Section of the Academy of Legal Studies in Business, and secretary of the Mid-Atlantic Academy of Legal Studies in Business. The studies are fairly clear across all types of demographics that diversity is beneficial in the workforce, that we want that diversity of perspectives, right? That you don't want this homogeneous type of thought where you have people with the same life experiences that are bringing those to the workplace and then thinking in the same way, right? So just as we want a diverse workforce across race and sex and sexual orientation and gender identity and ethnicity and religion, I think it also makes sense to have that across caretaking experiences, right? Because it's just another skill set And I don't think you want to eliminate a whole subset of people, particularly tends to be working mothers, simply because they decided to have children. In the long term, I think for the company itself, even certainly for society, but even for the company itself, isn't going to be a good business practice. By the way, the evidence for the importance of DEIAB is so overwhelming that Juan Otero has stopped entertaining the question, what's the business imperative for DEI at all? 
DEI is no longer a nice thing to do. If anyone ever asks me about what's the business imperative of this, I just I basically I'm not going to answer that question anymore. You know what the business imperative is. You know, it is the population of your customers, it's the population of the people who work with us. Yeah, that moment has long since passed. So treating it as a compliance issue. Yeah, I guess they're going to have a lot of self-limiting thoughts around that and a lot of self-inflicted wounds unnecessarily with that kind of perspective. Juan serves as Senior Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Comcast Corporation, where he oversees operational management of the company's DE&I efforts across the corporate enterprise. He previously served as Vice President for Comcast Corporation's Federal Government Affairs Team, where he was responsible for federal legislative advocacy with members of Congress and the administration. In addition, he sits on several national nonprofit boards, including Easter Seals, the Hispanic Federation, and the Smithsonian's Latino Center. So since the question of why has been overasked and overwhelmingly answered, let's move on to other questions, which as a general rule when it comes to DEI are invaluable. It helps to understand the rationale behind DEIAB concepts and their importance. So we're not simply regurgitating terms and buzzwords without understanding why they matter. Juan shared with me that he saw a lot of that performative posturing when people first began adding the E for equity into what had previously only been referred to as diversity and inclusion initiatives. There was nothing that was more candidly annoying to me or disheartening when folks would just put the E into the DEI work. And I was that provocateur or maybe the skunk at the garden party where I was saying, well, what does that mean to you? I know what equity means to me, but what does it mean to you? And what does this mean to our company? What does this mean to your company? What does this mean to systems? For me, equity is about outcomes. Are we having the right outcomes? And if we're not, how come we're not? What's the right question here? How are we adjudicating not equality, but equity and outcomes? And I think everybody needed to think about, because through equity, through that lens, that's where you're going to get to be looking at systemic racism. You're going to get to those issues that have left communities marginalized. Because only then when you dig deep, healthcare, our prisons, you look at our criminal justice system, you look at our real estate, banking, et cetera. I can keep going. When you start digging into that, that's where equity is the, the right question to be asked. Demystify diversity, making work safe for you and me. Shoulder to shoulder, we embark. Invite the light to send the dark. Let's embrace one another. Single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other? For Leora Eisenstadt, Diversity, equity, and inclusion aren't merely good business. They're moral and ethical imperatives. Leora is an associate professor in the Department of Legal Studies at the Fox School of Business at Temple University, a Murray Schusterman Research Fellow, the director of the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick, and an assistant producer and consultant for the Demystifying Diversity podcast. Here's her describing how Sedwick came about. I proposed the creation of the center back in 2017. 
really in response to the hashtag me too movement. I obviously have been doing this work for a long time, thinking about discrimination and retaliation. And suddenly it was this issue that although companies have been thinking about it internally for a long time, suddenly it was an external problem. So suddenly brand reputation was on the line and consumers were making choices based on companies that were known to harass their employees, right? And so what became sort of an internal, oh, we have to avoid liability and litigation suddenly became a much more external, bigger problem. And at that moment, I started thinking, you know, as a business school, we should really be paying more attention to workplace culture issues because it's sinking companies. It's actually having a massive impact. And if we are sending our students out into the world to be managers and to essentially have a a role in creating culture, if they don't know this stuff, it's like malpractice to be Mm -hmm. sending them out there. So that's when I proposed it. We quickly broadened it from gender in the workplace to diversity and workplace culture more generally. And then we added the ethics piece because I think it's really important. A lot of DEI work gets talked about in the context of the business case for diversity, why it's going to improve your bottom line, why it makes financial sense to think about these issues. And that's really important. And I'm at a business school, so I talk about those issues all the time. But putting ethics in the name of the center was important to signal that we are doing this both because it makes business sense and because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do externally to serve one's customer base in diverse, equitable, inclusive, and accessible ways. And it's the right thing to do internally to create workplace cultures that foster belonging and psychological safety. Kelly Clark is Chief Culture Officer at Aon United. She directs the firm's strategies for inclusive people leadership and culture initiatives, and she played a pivotal role in scaling Aon's signature cultural workshop, Leading Aon United, to reach more than 8,000 colleagues virtually while maintaining more than 98% positive feedback. You can have business objectives and growth initiatives and all the strategies in the world, But because organizations are made up of human beings doing human being things, we need to also talk about behaviors and values and how we engage as human beings with each other. And so ultimately, for me, my work is to enable our global colleague experience. And so that means really bringing the fullness of what does it mean to be a colleague at Aon to all of our 50,000 colleagues. And that's across areas like, how do you onboard into the organization? What do you experience? How do you experience a sense of belonging? How do you participate in business resource groups where you can meet colleagues who are learning about things that you're interested in or part of communities that you belong to? How do our early careers colleagues find their way at that very special point in their lives. How do people learn? How do they develop? How do we develop leaders? And so I get to work. It's like being a kid in a candy shop for me most days, but I get to work on all of that on behalf of our colleagues. So I'm honored to have my role. And I think as someone who's passionate about people, it's really, really fun to do my work. Cultivating workplace environments that embrace individuals of all identities and experiences is incredibly important. It can also be a challenge. People are dynamic and complex. 
we have histories and biases and ways of navigating the world that aren't always ideal. And sometimes it's only when we start striving to achieve greater organizational belonging, whether for ourselves or others, that we start to see where things are exclusionary. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world, local, and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu ddp for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash ddp for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce. With options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu ddp to learn more. 
Alita Miranda Wolf is the author of Cultures of Belonging, Building Inclusive Organizations That Last, and CEO and founder of Ethos, a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging firm dedicated to closing the opportunity gap for underrepresented and underserved groups. Alita told me about her investment in belonging and shared that perhaps paradoxically, the DEIB industry itself can be a place that is exclusionary and individualistic. I really agree with Roy Baumeister's work from the 1990s that to belong is to matter and is a basic psychological need for all human beings. And I have a fundamental belief about the DEIB world I came into, which I think is gratefully, from my standpoint, changing. When I started, no one was willing to share. They weren't willing to share how they did things. They were willing to share their ideas or their stances, but not the how. How do you do X? How do you do Y? It was all about what is proprietary and what's going to lead to the best outcomes for the success of my business, which is fundamentally very capitalist. And I didn't like that because it seemed to defeat the entire purpose of DEIB. I really believe in information sharing and knowledge sharing because ultimately, yes, I do run a business and I am an entrepreneur. To me, that's secondary. The mission is everything. And my mission is to create opportunity for underrepresented groups and companies, which is the world I can have the most impact on. Latanya Wilkins is also invested in creating opportunities for underrepresented individuals and groups. Latanya is the founder of the Change Coaches LLC, an organization dedicated to creating revolutionary leadership development, culture change, and extraordinary personal growth, and the author of Leading Below the Surface, How to Build Real and Psychologically Safe Relationships with People Who Are Different from You. Latanya seeks to reduce the opportunity gap by focusing on cultivating what she describes as below-the-surface leadership, and she told me that the presence of caring, compassionate leadership is what enables people to thrive, whereas the absence of it does the opposite. I had spent several years in corporate America not feeling like I belonged, also feeling like the way that we approached leadership needed to be fixed because we didn't really care about how we treated people. We didn't put that first. We put traditional archetypes first, like skill sets, like strategy, innovative leader, like all those things were first. But we didn't really have an archetype for how to uh, lead people, how to connect with people. There is a direct relationship between connecting with others and connecting with ourselves, which is why in their work, Sky Kowaleski supports people in showing up to the world as all of who they are. Sky is a writer, director, facilitator, speaker, consultant, and therapeutic breathwork practitioner who uses a multidisciplinary approach to cultivate internal awareness while simultaneously building their capacity for constructive communication with others. I facilitate calling in workshops with showing up for racial justice. I facilitate conversations with people that are really centered around inclusion and also centered around how do we have difficult conversations with people? How do we show up to those conversations? How do we regulate our bodies to show up to those conversations? And so integrally with that, I also teach, I'm a breathwork facilitator. I think for me, that fits into all of this. Although sometimes I'm like, whoa, (laughs) seems totally outside of it. But how do we heal from all the shit that we've all had to go through 
in this world, especially people who hold marginalized identities and multiple marginalized identities, and also thinking about breath as a really key way to regulate our bodies out of a reaction zone. If we can learn to control our breathing, how much more easily can we come to conversations that challenge us? And often I think conversations about inclusion, I facilitate conversations about inclusion in a multitude of different ways focused on my live reality, usually focused on LGBT inclusion or focused on specifically helping white folks like understand their whiteness in the context of how they move through the world. As Sky shared, they facilitate trainings that incorporate their lived reality. I do the same. I find that incorporating some of my own experiences and examples during trainings makes me more effective and relatable as a practitioner and as a person. James Barnes is a corporate trainer, coach, and public speaker whose own transition has equipped him to teach companies, schools, hospitals, and other organizations to create safe, uplifting, and empowering environments for LGBTQ individuals. In his work, James places a special emphasis on serving transgender adults and youth, something that enables him to show up as his authentic self as a trainer, facilitator, speaker, and coach. And he's found that his capacity to reach people is only possible because of his investment in authenticity. I bring a lot of myself. One example was I was teaching my workshop on trans and non-binary education, which is normally like going over pronouns, the history So they kind of have empathy of the ups and downs that our community has gone through. I talk about pronouns. It's basically trans 101 for people who know LGBTQ stuff. They're like, yeah, this is boring, James. But Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't know it. So I'm teaching the course to a group of teachers. I believe it was Colorado. And at the end of it, I started crying. And I said, I hope all of you understand the lives you're saving by showing up and listening to what I'm saying. And that if I had had a teacher who knew this when I was in middle school, my life would have been very different. If I had had an ally that I knew I could have talked to. And I also want all of you to know that I cannot imagine what it's like to be a teacher right now. You could just see like some of them were crying and it was just a very real moment. So I do not mind in any way bringing that realness because I think when you lack humanity, you lack purpose. And if you go into an environment to teach facts and you ignore the facts of humanity, then they're just words and they're not going to stick. But if I show people, people who might not be allies yet, maybe they're on the fence, but I show people that this is what a trans guy looks like. And I do show that vulnerability. I take that olive branch risk of I show my humanity, you show me yours kind of thing. There is this camaraderie often built. So that's what I try to show with companies is like, I'm not here to be angry. You're here to learn. I'm going to show you that I'm a helper. I want to help you. And you're going to be a little scared and that's okay. But I'm going to be really empathetic and I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And until you blatantly prove that wrong, I'm going to keep trying Vulnerability, empathy, self-awareness, emotional regulation, communication, these are skills we can cultivate. And there are many other skills that enable us to put DEIAB principles into action. 
Tomar shared with me that she and her colleagues at the University of Pittsburgh have come up with six habits of inclusion. Across the constituents of the law school, we've developed these habits of inclusion, these behaviors that people can do every day. Oftentimes people come and they say, well, well, what can I do to be more inclusive? So we've come up with these habits and we have six habits of inclusion, which are non-judgment, receiving and believing, self-awareness, curiosity, taking responsibility for impact and intent, and vulnerability. And the idea is that if we pick up on these habits, if I, as I'm just going through my workday, remind myself, hey, this is an opportunity to practice non-judgment, or you know what, rather than going in with critique, I'm going to go in with curiosity. As I cue myself to do these things, I know that the larger ripple effect outcome of my behaviors, of my self-discipline in choosing these behaviors, is that I'm contributing to the culture of inclusion in my law school, in my institution, wherever I I happen to be communing with others. And so it demystifies the process of how we create space for one another if we take personal responsibility for the things that I can do. Maybe I can't single-handedly dismantle structural racism, but you know what? I can practice the self-discipline of leading with my curiosity and asking a curious question rather than going in with defensiveness or, or with critique. If we envision diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging as outcomes, we continually pursue through the utilization of various practices and the expansion of our DEIAB skill set, we have to, by default, embody a growth mindset. And briefly, a growth mindset is a way of thinking that holds that our capacities and capabilities can be developed over time with practice, preparation, and support, which is different than a fixed mindset, which is binary and absolute. But I've seen so many people evolve over the course of my lifetime, especially when it comes to developing a greater capacity for empathy and letting go of deeply held biases, that I believe that almost everyone is capable of growing their capacities to love and learn. Amanda Arias is the Director of People and Culture at Jubilee Media. Prior to her current position, she accumulated more than 10 years of experience helping growth-centric startups build high-performing teams. And in her work, she operates from the motto, treat people like people. Amanda shared an example of how the growth mindset at Jubilee fosters an environment that enables people to realize their potential while also enabling the company to benefit from employee growth and development. I think having a growth mindset is so multifaceted because you can't have a growth mindset if the people around you don't have a growth mindset. For us, for example, recently we've hired an employee who just has that X factor, just has that sense of empathy that you need and just this loving warmth to them. And they're also came in and kind of knocked it out of the park with their responsibilities. And it was so beautiful. And so being able to see this person and immediately recognize they can do more, they can contribute more, not from a, Hey, let's pile on the work, but from a, how can we leverage this person to do more for us 
from a cultural perspective to do more with people that surround them on the team and, and leverage really that X factor in them. And so we created a program for that employee and people like them where we can say, hey, you know, we'd love for you to kind of take on this mentorship and help shape and path different avenues for the folks on your team and, and help them understand who you are and how you got to where you are. And so we built an entire program around this idea of, of leveraging our, our amazing employees that we have with their skills and helping spread that throughout the team. So I think examples like that for me would, would really kind of exemplify what having a growth mindset means. People. Diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging always come back to people. Here's Juan again. At the end of the day, what drives me, it's, it's the people. What is a company but just a combination of people, human beings with needs and wants and the feeling for mutual respect and mutual achievement and success together. So it is creating that circumstance where people can really have an inclusive culture where they will be more creative, where they will be more productive, where they will double down on the company. I'm really proud of the place that I work on. Again, I think there's always room for improvement. I say that all the time, but this kind of commitment, you know, you don't see it in a lot of places. You know, we've been at it for a very long time. So what drives me really ultimately, it's that human piece of workforce and creating, frankly, a better place to work, but also a better place in the world, really. A better place to work that does better work in the world sounds exciting, right? But it might also sound a bit overwhelming. I mean, how do organizations demonstrate their commitment to putting people first? Luckily, there are a number of concrete actions, such as investing in professional development, providing flexible hours and accommodations, letting workers have autonomy while also receiving support, soliciting feedback, providing encouragement, appreciation, and financial compensation to recognize performance, building cultures of belonging, and more. Every organization can implement these practices in different ways, but there are a lot of commonalities and a number of best practices. At many larger organizations that are committed to actively cultivating values of diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging, it's common to see employee resource groups, also known as ERGs, affinity groups, or business network groups. Here's Juan again. We've been at this with our ERGs for a long time. They're the most dedicated, the most supportive, best Comcasters in the company. And they go the spectrum in terms of populations. In fact, we just launched an indigenous ERG company-wide ERG, um, I think it was earlier this year. So it was how do we expand our definitions, our dimensions of diversity, if you will, to be as inclusive as we can. I've seen the, you know, whether it's helping us with products, it's helping us with surveys, uh, whether it's mentoring and coaching that they're doing, it's just, the list is pretty long. It's really impressive, this force that we have within the company, and it's just probably the one of the best things in the world that we've ever done in terms of our D&I space to empower folks to, to empower themselves, if you will. I've never thought to ask someone this question before, but I feel like Comcast is a large enough organization that I can ask it <laughs> of you. But what if employees fit into multiple employee resource groups, you know, potentially, right? They have multiple yeah. identities. Could people join 
Multiple? I don't even know how that works. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, again, you don't have to be to belong. You know, it's like one of those things where we want folks to, look, intersectionality is a word that's tossed around. In fact, we do a lot of trainings on that as well because this concept is here. And, you know, we are all many things. And your identity, cultural, racial, what have you, shouldn't lock you into not being, you know, a supporter across communities. I think we definitely have a very broad stroke. We want everyone to come to the table. Employee resource groups bring individuals with shared identities and experiences together. Yet ERGs alone aren't enough. It's important to move from smaller collectives into larger communities, while also empowering ERGs to provide member resources and support. I want to acknowledge that while people may share elements of experience or identity, there is always diversity within every identity. So ERG members may have different experiences and objectives based on what's important to them. Here's A.C. Folks, the executive director of Folks Consulting, an LGBTQ plus sensitivity and transgender inclusion consulting firm. We are not homogenous. And so it's not fair to expect one person to speak for an entire people group. And we kind of spoke a little bit about that earlier, the dangers of one person speaking for an entire people group. And so I want to be careful not to, I don't want to engage in any tokenism either. I don't want you to be like that token trans person, that token bi person that I go to and I say, let me ask all my questions. And then you answer. And I say, this is what bi people believe. This is what transgender people believe. Well, no, 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 no. That's what, that's what AC believes. We are not homogenous and we don't necessarily think, feel, experience life in the same way. And there's something beautiful about that. When I wrote the book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, I was hoping to convey the perspective that it's important to celebrate our differences while simultaneously embracing all we share. That's something Kelly has found becomes more and more possible when organizations commit to the implementation of values and the cultivation of culture. It's super important as a global organization to have a company culture, things that are true no matter where you are in the organization. We have three values. They're committed, united, and passionate. And so what committed looks like in North America versus in Italy versus in Singapore is very different what passion looks like. Americans are always excited. The Brits are very passionate, but they wouldn't use that word as often as we do. And so we do create these global standards, global norms, global ways for people to connect. But it is incredibly important that the local communities where our colleagues do their work and work with our clients is also both respected and encouraged and we use a lot of language. We respect local holidays. We celebrate local holidays. And so you oftentimes find that when we will do a call for some of our colleagues to facilitate content, we'll pull from all of our regions. And then those colleagues play an active role in not only learning about the content, but they will translate the content and share the content and tell stories of how that's locally come to life for them. And it's a really, really beautiful thing. 
Within organizations, it's important that every employee has an understanding of the company's standards and values. And it's also important that organizations make a commitment to honoring diversity of identity and perspectives. Kelly described how employee resource groups help support people as individuals within a broader cultural context. There's a difference in the activities that you do to drive a change in the diversity of your team. That's like who's on the team and the representation and how many people are in the room and how are their voices represented and how do you make sure that you're aware of that representation and maybe what's missing when you're making decisions. Then inclusion, the equity piece is like a different, those are different bodies of activity. You could argue what comes first, sort of the chicken or the egg, or you just have to know that we need all of these things working in tandem to create ultimately something better than we could if we were doing it alone. And so what we've been trying to do, at least at Aon, is help people really understand the differences in those bodies of work. And then how do you bring the right voices or the right people in to solve them. And so one of the things we've done is allowed our our business resource groups to help guide conversations after certain social events happen around the world or around cultural holidays to raise awareness. And it's really amazing when you see people who are part of We call them business resource groups. Another name for them is employee resource groups. But oftentimes these are not the colleagues who are like the leaders in the firm or the ones you see on the town halls, or they're just colleagues doing their job and they're coming to work and they do great work every day. But to see them then in a place of leadership where they're shepherding a conversation or they're speaking out super vulnerably saying like, as an Asian American this year, for me, it was really hard. And here's the story of what happened to me on the streets of New York. And I I don't need you to do anything, but I just wanted to tell you that it happened to me. And you start to see then the leaders more aware and they're then learning from the people who they're usually leading. And you start to get this really, I don't know, beautiful dichotomy almost, but I think that's innovation because it's getting somebody out of their normal place and rhythm and letting them show up in a different kind of way. Speaking of showing up in different ways, there are different ways of approaching DEIAB. And since workplace cultures are themselves diverse, different workplaces benefit from different types of interventions. On their website, Lily shares their approach to DEI consulting, which they describe as no-nonsense, one-size-never-fits-all, purposeful and pragmatic, and systemic, not individual. In practical terms, here's how that might play out in some real-life scenarios. I tell people what they need to know to get things done. What that means is, for example, if I've just done data analysis and I find that there is a strong bias towards white people in a workplace and the culture reflects many different incidents of racial discrimination, maybe overt, maybe covert, I will say to leaders, you know, you have a white supremacy problem, right? Like you have a problem where white voices, where white experiences are elevated and prioritized over other experiences. 
And I will just say that because you need to know, you need to be able to accurately name the problem before you can solve it. And I contrast this with other approaches that I think are are more political or take longer to communicate. I think that there's real value in taking both approaches. So I'm not here saying that if you don't call it white supremacy, you can't do good DEI work. But to me, the value of an outside consultant is to bring someone with a more objective point of view that can laser focus on your problem so that you can fix your shit. If you want someone to be very tactful and to hold your hand and to guide you, well, that's fine. You know, like I'm sure everyone in the workplace is already doing that to avoid hurting leaders' feelings. And if that's someone you want, I would say that that's not necessarily the best use of an external consultant's time. For me, if someone is bringing me in versus, let's say, working with someone they already know or a close friend, then that's because they want something that they don't already have, which is somebody to be very firm and very real with them, even if it's not always comfortable and tell them exactly what they want, you know, not what they want to hear, what they need to hear. Alita, who also works as an outside DEIB consultant, told me that she has been able to utilize her position as an outsider to challenge organizations to revise their existing paradigms. There are two examples that I'll share here. The first is we work with a lot of nonprofits and I was recently having a conversation with another nonprofit consultant, and I talked about how in our latest DEIB assessment, we recommended divestment of a very large endowment into smaller organizations and communities of color, which is much more aligned to what the foundation says they want to do. And he was absolutely shocked. And he said, you were laughed out of the room, right? And I said, no, they're considering it. The board is reviewing it. It's going to be a process, but it's something we're actively engaging on. And the idea was you can't challenge the structure in that fundamental of a way. I have a museum that we work with where I've said, let's eliminate the master's and PhD requirements for curatorial staff. And again, I had an audible gasp in my Zoom room (laughs) and I said, you are working on contemporary art. If you're hiring PhDs in art history, are you really staying ultimately as current as you need to be? And are you not considering other outlets, other platforms, other places? So there's one, this sense of we can make changes in organizations, but we have to stay within very narrow bounds that are much closer to accessible HR techniques or a level up from employee engagement work, as opposed to saying that work is necessary. And if you ask employees, they want you to make those changes. Being able to assess and suggest which interventions will simultaneously support employees and support organizational objectives can be a balancing act and can require understandings of both individual behavior and organizational norms. That's Armando X. Estrada's area of expertise. Armando, who everyone calls Axe, is an associate professor in the Department of Policy, Organizational, and Leadership Studies at Temple University. He previously served as a program manager and senior research psychologist with the Foundational Science Research Unit of the United States Army Research Institute for the Behavioral and Social Sciences. Prior to that, he served in the U.S. Marine Corps from 1987 to 1995, and Axe continues to be actively involved in the Society for Military Psychology. 
Most people are familiar with psychologists. The most common image of psychologists is a clinician who you meet with and you discuss a variety of life challenges and that individual helps you navigate solutions and responses to those things. Uh, well, I don't do that. Industrial organizational psychologists do similar things with organizations. So we take organizations and we help them navigate issues involving employees involving training, involving development, and other related organizationally focused issues, and figure out ways to improve performance, improve relationships at work, and improve the overall functioning of the organization. To draw a parallel, whereas a clinical psychologist might be focused on making improvements and dealing with issues that an individual faces in their personal life, an industrial organizational psychologist is likewise interested in looking at problems, challenges, and so forth of the organization, which include employees, leaders, and the organization as a whole. I asked Axe how he, as an outside consultant, is able to foster such multidisciplinary improvements. I think when you go into an organization, your first task is to diagnose the situation, right? And so to get a read on what is exactly the nature of the problem that you're there to, uh, to deal with? Or maybe it may not be a, a problem, it may be a challenge, or it may be just a simple issue. But really get your head wrapped around what it is that the organization or the individuals within an organization are asking you to facilitate or help with. And then in addition to that, figure out who the key players or the individuals involved in coming up with a sustainable solution are. And so part of that means you're going to have to get to know individuals and individuals within the organization to understand the organization as a whole. So I think when you approach an organization, you have to take what we call a multi-level perspective and look at not only the problem, but really the problem encapsulated within persons and groups and the larger organization. Organizations that want to remain competitive and collaborative have to be willing to change the way they've always operated. And as I said, sometimes this involves hiring outsiders to assess what's needed, but sometimes insiders are the ones who are best equipped to evaluate and drive change. Hey, listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question or send us a note through our website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. Joyce Jelks, known personally and professionally as JJ, is the head of people and culture at Wyden and Kennedy, New York, an Army major, the chief founding member relationship engagement manager for Sean Johnson, and founder of Ottawa Park HR Advisory. 
JJ owns her own consulting company and works in-house to cultivate a culture of belonging at Wyden and Kennedy, New York. She told me about some of the questions she asks, both as a consultant and as an employee, to get a sense of inter-organizational culture. Are they getting the support they need? Are their managers getting trained to be able to evaluate them properly? What are those systems they're being trained on? Uh, looking at compensation, benchmarking. So when it comes bonus time, is there fairness? Is there equity across the organization? Looking at pay parity, looking at how are people advancing? Are they getting promoted? Are people getting promoted for the right things? Because I've also been in spaces where, you know, you have the boys club. So the boys always get promoted. And sometimes the boys are white men and a lot of people are left behind. So being able to come in and say, all right, what does this look like organizationally? How are we showing up? If we say we really want diversity and we really want people to advance, is that actually happening? Are we just saying it or is it quantifiable? Can we actually look at the results? Because another thing too, to bring up like in 2020, when there was a lot of pressure, right? For organizations to show up, they're like, oh, you know what? We need to hire a black person, <laughs> bring them in. Here we go, right? To be able to appease the masses so nobody got lit up on social media. That's really what it was. But when they got there, did those folks get the tools and resources they needed to actually make change? Were they able to get the budgets they needed for programming? Could they hire? Could they influence hiring? Or was it more of like a figurehead to say, oh, we have this person? So a lot of it is just helping managers challenge them. And over the years, I've learned to, yes, I, I help with policy to make sure that's there, to make sure people have support. It's clear they have support. They can family plan. They can have some type of a longevity <laughs> with it. And is it sustainable? Like, do you believe it's sustainable? And I can say, like, I've seen the real things that actually they're really trying. And I've seen the Band-Aids. So a lot of it is just taking what I'm able to, to do in the spaces I'm able to be in to really, like, challenge and drive change. So that's how I look at it now is to be a change agent, not necessarily like the, the policymaker that I used to think it was. Being a change agent is also a driving force for Amanda. She told me that it's part of why she loves working at Jubilee. And just a note, when she references Jason, she's speaking about Jason Lee, founder and CEO of Jubilee Media. I stumbled upon Jubilee last fall. And after meeting with Jason and a few of the other folks here, I just knew that this was really going to be a place that was going to be focused on disrupting work culture as it is. And I was so excited about it. So I, I joined in December and it's been an incredible experience. And it's a really kind of new way to think about work. A few years ago, back in like 2017, 2018, there was the, the tag phrase of the future of work. And it was everybody talking about what the future of work would be. And there was a lot of logistical conversation, but there wasn't a lot of cultural conversation. And so I was sort of taking in that wherever I could, you know, attending conferences and, and reading books and talking to people and networking. And I think that the future of work is really being able to be who you are and be accepted and celebrated for who you are. And I think that 
historically and, and traditionally in a lot of large corporate cultures, that's not the case. Um, and I know I certainly have have worked in places like that where you're sort of expected to fall within a narrow lens of who you should represent yourself as and not who you truly are. And so, you know, Jubilee, we're really excited about the kind of culture that we're building. We have a very diverse culture and we're really excited about making this a place where people can come to work and really be themselves, no matter who that is, and where we can celebrate that. Amanda shared some of the ways that Jubilee has demonstrated their commitment to diversity and psychological safety. So what we've done is we've rolled out a lot of training for managers on how to practice psychological safety, how to seek feedback. And we really make that a part of who we are. So we do semi-annual surveys within our performance um, review cycles that we've launched. We allow for not only where we're uh, reviewing the employee, but they can give their managers feedback. They can give mentors feedback. So not only are we giving, but we're also requesting and soliciting feedback so that we can all constantly work on the things that we need to do to make people feel like they really have a chance for success here. Not only that, we just celebrate our our differences. We celebrate our individual creative endeavors. And so there's just a lot of things that we do to make people feel not like they are employees, but like they are people. And I think that's that's sort of the the main thing that you want to be thinking about is you're not looking at a group of employees, you're looking at a group of human beings. And so you sort of start there and then move backwards, you know. Approaches to achieving DEIAB outcomes have to put people first, and they have to be multidisciplinary and multidimensional. To that point, taking an approach to diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility readiness that is not itself diverse, equitable, inclusive, and accessible leads to exclusion and ostracization. There's so many people they have confidence, they have some artificial confidence from traditional DEI strategies and tactics that they apply to disability inclusion because it's all under this bigger umbrella of DEI. And yeah, they are totally African-Americans who are blind and there's totally Asian Americans who have dyslexia and every different race and gender and sexual orientation has a disability. But those same requirements those same needs that people of racial, sexual orientation, or gender diversity, those same needs that for those demographics are completely different and do not satisfy the needs for the various needs, the dynamic needs, the ever-growing needs, the changing needs for people with disabilities. It's like, I can't wake up one day and be any less white, but I might be less able to see or more able to see or more depressed one day or less depressed, or my ADHD is going crazy today. I, do, I can't get it under control or I'm really laser focused. And so we have this dynamic oscillating moving target that's disability and inclusion. And when we use traditional approaches, tactics, and strategies to do that, I think that's how companies might be unintentionally being exclusionary, but somehow still being intentionally exclusionary. That was Tanner Gears, the president and founder of Accessibility Officer, a data-driven disability inclusion firm that helps companies drive ability D&I and maximize ROI. 
Tanner also serves as a board member for Menus for All and recently co-authored Foresight Augmented Reality's solution proposal for the U.S. Department of Transportation's Inclusive Design Challenge. He's also a U.S. Paralympian World Championship team member. As he points out, even well-meaning attempts at inclusion can be exclusionary, which is because diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility initiatives aren't simply a series of actions. They reflect our values and beliefs, and it's on that level that expansion has to happen. Tanner sat down for his interview with his strategic business partner, Will Bubinek, the founder and CEO of Nebula Media Group, whose mission it is to ensure that websites are accessible so that people with disabilities can access them. From audits and fixes to training and coaching, Nebula Media Group provides customized accessibility solutions so companies can attain, maintain, and sustain a true accessibility and compliance program at their organization. Here's Will. Ultimately, in organizations, it needs to be a mindset shift. And you have to embrace what I call an accessibility mindset. So you have to constantly ask yourself that question of, will this make our experience more accessible? That is something that I really advocate for, is that we can provide all of these services fundamentally. Sure, we can do web accessibility consulting. We can fix your site. We can do training or coaching, whatever it may be. But you really need to embrace this as a mindset shift and ask yourself that question when you start actually putting these theories into practice. DEIAB strategies need to be expansive enough to account for a variety of needs and perspectives while remaining specific enough to provide value to the organization in question. Here's Kelly again. Part of the DEI sphere is that what success or good or effectiveness looks like in one organization isn't always. I mean, there's some core things, but like, what do we need to do as an organization? Where are we in our own evolution? How do we come alongside each other and just make each other better? So this was all, I mean, I can't believe that we're two years and going in this pandemic, but it's like thinking back, to 2020, we were in the pandemic, the George Floyd murder happened, you had all of this social unrest in the US and things kind of just constantly going on around the world. And what we realized is our colleagues were desperate for something to do something to hang on to something to read something to give back to. And we had all of this content, but it was like, In one training course, you got a nugget on what it meant to be an ally. And in another training course, you got another nugget on what it meant to make information accessible. And we started going across the organization going like, okay, but what it means to be an ally in Asia is totally different than what it means to be an ally to the LGBTQ community. And how do we start to bring some of this together to point people to one place for whatever it might be that they're looking to do to just continue to evolve and improve and become more aware. And our teams just collected essentially what we had and put it in one spot. And we call it our ally guide because essentially you can go there to learn like, I don't know what it means when someone says microaggression or I don't know what it means when somebody says they're non-binary. 
it's a safe place for people to go look up terminology, to go do a little bit of reading. It gives resource recommendations. It talks about different forms of allyship, different issues that face different communities and populations. And it's been actually our most downloaded resource across the organization and still continues to be. Many people at all levels within a variety of organizations want to build more inclusive cultures and don't know how. They don't have a clear sense of how to relate to their colleagues, how to support those around them, how to advocate for more inclusive practices, or what to do when they recognize exclusion in action. And it can be especially problematic when the people who don't know are in positions of power. Even in 2023, a significant percentage of mid- and upper-level executives are inept at cultivating cultures of belonging within their teams, which was one of the reasons LaTanya Wilkins wrote Leading Below the Surface, How to Build Real and Psychologically Safe Relationships with People Who Are Different from You. In fact, LaTanya knows firsthand what it feels like to exist in environments with and without below-the-surface leadership. In my book... I talk a lot about below the surface leaders and the people that lead with care and they care about people and they lead with empathy. We lead with psychological safety and what I call real leadership. And I will say I was lucky to get those folks. It was a toss up. And so what I had to do is in my interview process, I usually tried to sift through all the noise and see if that person could meet me below the surface. As far as allies, it was hard because I didn't, I wouldn't say I had a ton of those. I would say I was really dependent on my managers because those were the people that I got closest to during the interview process. And they were the people that would scout me out and hire me because of the skill set I was bringing, like the creative skill set I was bringing. And a lot of times they were taking a risk on me. So it was, it was harder to get those allies and those sponsors. And that's why I think effectively, I never felt like I fit in because I didn't have psychological safety. Sometimes I didn't even have it with my manager because the forces above them have impacted that, but I definitely didn't have it across the board within these, these executive teams sometimes. In the absence of consistent allyship and having sparse and sporadic below-the-surface leaders, LaTanya found herself in work environments where she didn't want to be anymore. One of the below-the-surface leaders I had left the company, and then another one left, and then I kind of felt that I was on my own, and I had to fend for myself. And I won't get too much into this, but things was not in a safe environment. It was very clear. I was actually a little bit, I would say, hostile. It's kind of interesting how the below the surface leaders can be such a big buffer. And I lost that buffer. And so, you know, with the below the surface leaders, you know, the metaphor, you could kind of jump off and they're going to catch you, but there's no one to catch you. You're hitting the ground all the time and all the time and all the time. And that's what I was feeling like. I could make a mistake or I could try something new and it didn't go exactly as planned. And before I had that psychological safety where it was like, oh, great. This is how innovation happens. Try again, try again. But then it was like, no more. Like I have no more cards, right? And those cards ran out very quickly. To LaTanya's point about psychological safety, enabling innovation and fostering environments where a variety of perspectives are valued, Amanda told me that Jubilee owes its success to its emphasis on building diverse and inclusive teams. 
we are a creative organization. We're nothing without the creativity of all of our individual employees' minds. And so you can't have creativity if you're not promoting diversity in thought. And diversity in thought means having people from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnicities, just different walks of life, joining together and sharing experiences and being able to feel really safe about sharing those experiences as well. And and feel like whether you are successful or you fail in whatever you create, that there's a safety there for you because regardless, you are being yourself, you are bringing yourself to the table. And that should always be something that you are recognized and rewarded for. Really, really allowing for that creativity through diversity and thought is really important to us. But in order to build environments where everyone has a voice, leadership has to be willing to listen and to demonstrate a commitment to DEIAB. Here's Axe again. Ask leaders, what are you willing to do? Do you have skin in the game? Do you really want to make changes? Do you really understand what it is that you want to do? Fundamentally, what you're asking the organization is to change attitudes, behaviors, and thoughts. And that's not easily done. And so you have to be committed to do what you need to do in order to bring about that change and understand that that is going to be a process and a long-term process of that. And so building that understanding and and building that appreciation becomes important because sometimes folks think they want to do this, but then realize they don't have the stomach to do that. But sometimes you do. And even if you do, you have to build tolerance to be able to sustain that process. And and it's it's not easy work, right? So it becomes a multi-pronged approach to try to figure out what kinds of things do I need to do now in the future and in the very distant future to get to where I want to be? How do I sustain effort, energy, and impetus to do that over a long period of time? Organizations have to equip leaders with the resources to affect real change and make it clear to them that their own success depends on their ability to foster employees' diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging. And as for how to foster DEIAB practices and outcomes, there are two approaches to creating organizational change. One is individual. The other is systemic. Hey listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast, and I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, 
Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook, too. Happy learning. Let's return to Lily. I liken it to this metaphor. Imagine that you are trying to shape the behavior of many different people in an organization. And I like to think of people as droplets of water and the organization as a vessel. Now, I think that individual focused work to change hearts and minds can be particularly effective. In that metaphor, it would be like changing each droplet of water into something else. One by one, change each droplet of water. Now, the reason why I take a systemic approach is because I think, in my point of view, that changing the system is a much more effective and scalable way of changing behavior. And in that metaphor, it means changing the shape of the vessel rather than changing the nature of the water. And so if you just turn that vessel from a cup into, I don't know, a bowl, people's behavior will change to fit it. People are malleable. And so, for example, saying, let's get people to discriminate less. Two different methods to do that. One is the individual approach. Let's go person by person and make sure every single person knows not to discriminate. Every person knows what to do instead. Versus, let's go systemic. Let's find the reasons why people discriminate and let's shape on the systems level the policies, the processes, the culture that they live in, that they work in to incentivize different behaviors. So let's make it instead that non-discrimination is so much easier than discrimination to do in a given environment, such that you can have a really biased person, right? I'm, I'm not going to change a person's biases, but in that organization, they feel so compelled by the design of the environment that they act inclusively anyways. That second model is, is the way that I do my work. Not because I don't think the first is effective, but because I think it's the best fit for who I am, the work that I do, and the approach that I use. To their point, both individual and systemic change have value. And in fact, many times both are needed. Juan talked about this in his interview, as well as about the ways in which Comcast is working both within its organization and within the larger community to promote accessibility across all dimensions of difference, which frankly seemed like a lot to navigate. How do you work on all those levels? Oh, it's <laughs> carefully and deliberately. I think as these dimensions of diversity really get accounted for, it's like, you know, how are we recognizing these things? Case in point, you know, PWD. And there are so many folks who don't necessarily know that have the family members who have cognitive disabilities. Who are they caring for? Who are they taking care of? What are people's things that they don't want to necessarily come to the table with and, and discuss? And for a whole lot of reasons about why they may not want to self-ID. That's a particular focus of mine these days about how do we engage that particular community. But you're absolutely right. The spectrum of things that give us our identities, it's a good thing for this country that we are now all coming to terms with. We're all unique. We're all special. We, we've all got these identities. And it can be a challenge to make sure that we're doing the best that we can by all of our employees uh, at any given time. You know, there's so many stress points in society right now. The list is too long, but again, as I mentioned the API violence just recently. How are we providing that assurances to our API employees around 
know, psychological safety. How are they feeling about their own physical safety? What are the the tools we can give them to to make them feel better about you know where they work in terms of supporting the community, but at the same time making sure that they feel safe with mental health uh, potentially offerings from our uh, health products. There's a lot going on there to unpack. I don't know if we've got enough time to go through, through it all, but it's it's something that look you've got to be intentional. You got to be authentic. People use these words a lot, but folks need that empathetic voice, and they need to know that they're being seen and they're being heard, and the best they can. In order for diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility initiatives to be effective, they have to account for the fluidity and complexity of individual identity, as well as the fluidity of society and organizational culture. Here's JJ again. You have to have policies that are dynamic. So looking to say, all right, are these policies limiting? Are they motivating? Are they just there for no reason? Are they being implemented? What does the performance review look like? Are we even talking about what they're doing from an inclusion standpoint? Because we have some employees that are running like employee resources groups, but aren't being recognized in their performance evaluation. But that's like sometimes almost an additional function they're doing for the organization's culture, but it's not recognized. So telling the company to be like, hey, you know, we should actually take a look at this. And people are like, oh, my God, I never thought about it. So it's stuff like that, because there's a lot I think we could do from an HR standpoint, having seen it at the table and like behind the scenes that could really help people. And I think also for people of color, there's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of layers and intentional layers sometimes. And I want to kind of cut through that to be like, wait a second, I know how this works. That's bullshit. So I'm trying to use the knowledge for good. And that's what I hope to do is to just impact as much as I can. And I know I'm one person, but it's in my head and it shouldn't stay there. If all this sounds like a lot, it can be. But as long as organizations adopt a growth mindset, they can continue to move forward towards better ways of serving their employees and consumers. They can move towards creating environments where people can share what's in their heads and hearts and thereby benefit the collective with their individual perspectives. I should mention here that DEIAB isn't always motivated by lofty ideals or a service-oriented mindset. Many organizations that embark on diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging initiatives start out thinking about compliance, avoiding lawsuits, their public-facing image, or other short-term self-serving objectives. Here's Will again. Probably 80 to 90% of the clients that we work with come to us with a short-term goal. We've been sued. We need to be compliant now. And sure, we're happy to help you with that. But what's going to happen when you add new content to the site? What's going to happen if someone leaves the organization and you bring somebody in? You need to actually embrace these principles. And I sell, quote unquote, a four-step program. And Tainer is a big part of the end portion of that program where you're discovering what your accessibility issues are. We help you attain accessibility But then the shift really goes into maintaining accessibility and ultimately sustaining accessibility. And so we oftentimes see people come to us with this short-term goal. We need to be compliant now, and we're glad to help them with that. But as they're starting to see the work that's actually being done and the true mindset shift that they have to take into account, we see a larger conversion into these continuity programs 
because it's important not just to discover these problems, but to attain accessibility, maintain it, and then truly sustain it for the long term. It's essential for organizations to grow their DEIAB capacity and to move from initial self-interested short-term goals to a long-term commitment. And Juan had some words of caution for those organizations that remain uncommitted, despite the clear business and ethical imperatives for building more diverse, inclusive, equitable, and accessible workplaces. The folks that I have seen that have not done well in this space are folks that have dabbled at it. This is not dabbling. This is something that has to be done with sort of a combination of skills. It is about knowing your HR practices. It is about knowing about culture issues. It is about knowing about data analytics. important to know about public policy issues that are driving. It's sort of like a bunch of pillars in this space. So getting your arms around that is mission critical. The companies that sustain change and build upon it are the ones that benefit, and their employees also benefit. But sadly, not every organization does develop the intrinsic motivation to expand their culture of belonging or to embrace the wide range of identities that exist both within the workplace and in the world. And not doing so sends a message to their employees and their customers. Here's James again. The biggest negative I'm having right now showing up as a corporate trainer for you know LGBTQ, it's a specific type of diversity training, is companies are only wanting to hire me in pride. And it's been really hard to try to build a career off of that. But also, I wouldn't say emotionally, but I think just representation-wise, it annoys the shit out of me because not only as a business owner, nobody can survive off of one month a year. I mean, unless you're doing some really, really awesome work, but also as somebody who the whole work I'm doing is for representation, I tell these companies, when you only are hiring me for pride, what it's telling your employees, not just the trans employees, but the people who treat the trans employees a certain way that you as a company only care about them during one month. It's the same as Black History Month. It's with Women's History Month. When you only talk about a certain topic during one said month, it communicates to your followers, it communicates to your friends, it communicates to your employees that it's performative. And so that's been my biggest frustration is I'm all for having a pride event, but have me come back, hire me in January and then say to toot my own horn, you all loved him. We wanted to bring him back for pride. That's a cool thing. It shows one that you are investing in the same type of creators and employees are going to love that. But two, it shows all of the haters that work there, the transphobic people. This company's serious about it and you don't get to discriminate. You don't get to harass. And that's not happening right now. And so there's a big, I'm feeling that I can feel that inner frustration for myself. It's frustrating for those working in the DEIAB space, and it's frustrating for employees of all identities to be working at organizations that don't make a commitment to continuing to engage in meaningful ways. So while organizations can begin with small, short-term objectives, ultimately those objectives need to grow in order to demonstrate a commitment to not only profitability, but to people. 
sure, you want to avoid $200,000 lawsuit, but really you do want your employees to enjoy coming to work, like truthfully. And I have those kind of conversations, empathy-based, that a lot of times people in corporations forget to have. We do forget to have constructive, empathetic conversations, or we deprioritize their importance. But when we can continually make the commitment to cultivate diverse, equitable, inclusive, and accessible spaces where people of all identities can show up as authentic and as transparent as they choose to be, we create better workplaces, which in turn creates a better world. Here's AC again. I do this work because I realize that this is the one part of a person's life that I feel like I can make a meaningful and impactful change without having to get so close that it would be too close in their estimation. And by that, I mean, for a lot of people, home is not safe. The larger community might not be safe. Sometimes faith communities are not even safe if you're an LGBTQ community. But I feel like I can make a difference in the workplace. And we spend so much of our time at work that if if I can make the workplace just a little bit safer, I can really make a difference in your life without having to venture over into areas that really are not mine to venture into. I can make a, a lasting impression and make a big difference in your life. And so that is why I do this work. And that's why I focus so much on the workplace, because we spend so much of our time there. That if you can make that safer, if you can make that a place of, of respite, of refuge, sometimes people are escaping from what are otherwise unhealthy or unsafe or unpleasurable circumstances when they come to work. And so if we can make work safe, if you can show up and be your authentic self at work, even if you can do it nowhere else, then, then that makes it worth it. And here's Sky. I do the work that I do because I think there are so many different ways in which we are asked to show up to the world as less that we are. We are asked to check ourselves into boxes. We are asked to compartmentalize who we are into different fragments. We are asked to hide different parts of our identities. We are asked to clamp down on the messiest parts of ourselves in order to be neater, more presentable human beings. And I think that's in conflict with happiness. (laughs) I think that's in conflict with being able to live our fullest, freest lives, to take risks in the world, to make full, authentic, heartfelt connections with other human beings. And I want people to have joy. I want everyone to have access to joy and full human, authentic connections. My hope is that each one of us can take an active role in building workplace environments that embrace individuals of all identities, that enable workers to show up as their full, authentic selves and share their gifts. And isn't that the value of diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging? Individuals bring themselves, their identities, and their experiences forward, and in doing so, they help co-create better systems and a better society? Can we move forward differently? To foster greater equity Even if we don't always understand Fairness we can and should demand Let's embrace one another Single colleagues, working mothers People of all points of view 
Can we see each other through? Thank you to this episode's guests. Lily Zhang, Tamar Pearson-Brown, Natalie Peterson, Juan Otero, Leora Eisenstadt, Kelly Clark, Alita miranda Wolf, Latanya Wilkins, Sky Kowaleski, James Barnes, Amanda Arias, A.C. Folks, Armando X. Estrada, Axe, Joyce J.J. Jelks, Tanner Gears, and Will Bubinek, and to our episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. Every episode of this season of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with Azaria Keys, Assistant Director of Sedwick, Co-Producer and Coordination Consultant, Leora Eisenstadt, Sedwick Director, Assistant Producer and Consultant, Zach James, Co-Collaborator and Marketing Manager, Paul Kondo, Assistant Producer and Editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, audio technician and consultant, Stuart Kraintz, production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by me, Dara Lise Lyons, in collaboration with Ramon Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week for a question and answer episode. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.